electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Meme stock mania in full swing again. Tupperware shares surging, but it's another nearly bankrupt company that has traders in a frenzy right now. Old faces make new returns to Disney, a succession drama reboot in the making. Who could replace CEO Bob Iger? And what is going to happen to ESPN? Apple's preparing to make some major changes to its next iPhone. And from the automotive world to media, CEOs get paid the big bucks. But who has the toughest job right now? And which 2024 presidential candidate is hauling in the most cash? We get updated figures from the super-packed race. Plus, how one entrepreneur pulls in six figures a month, working just five hours a week. And how do I get that gig? Gotta love Make It Mondays. A jam-packed show ahead. Last Call starts right now. Good evening from the East Coast and good afternoon to you out West. We begin tonight with a hot stock summer, a July to remember on Wall Street, with S&P stock performance blowing past most strategists' year-end targets. The blue chip Dow jumped 3%, the fourth positive month in the last five. Last week, the Dow posted its first 13-day win streak in 36 years. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, hey, not too shabby, both finished firmly in the green to cap off their fifth positive month in a row. That hasn't happened in two years. So what is driving the red-hot rally? Blowout earnings results this quarter. In fact, 80% of companies or thereabouts in the S&P 500 have beaten Q2 estimates. And this week is the busiest yet. We are watching for reports from Apple and Amazon and many others. Is it enough to convince the cautious sideliners? That's my name for those sitting on the sidelines. Let's talk about it with our opening panel, lead writer at the Wall Street Journal, Gunjan Banerjee, and chief investment officer at G Squared Private Wealth, Victoria Green. Ladies, thank you for being with me tonight on Last Call. Good to see you. Uh, Victoria, we went back and we looked at a lot of your CNBC appearances throughout the spring and into June, and cautious optimism seems to be the theme. Are you still optimistic yet cautious? Yeah, I think I'd actually flip that and be I'm more cautious than optimistic at this point, especially coming into this week's seasonality in August and September. And we've seen so much capitulation. You talked about the sideliners. I'm not sure how many sideliners you have left. You know, you finally had Mike Wilson capitulate a little bit. And so you have all of these strategists now fully behind this bull market theory. And I think one strategist said it best. They said, we're so so bullish, we're bearish, right? It's run up so much and everybody's buying into this bull story. I think I've heard everything from the golden road to Goldilocks data. 
you know, to the mission accomplished. And when you start to get this bullish, I do think you need to be cautious. This optimism can't keep propping it up. And, and if you have to look at where the economy is going, where the macro data is, the macro data really doesn't back up with the technicals and where the market's traded. So I think you really need to be looking at pulling some profits off. I know it's boring. I get it. But being boring sometimes is good. Buy low, sell high. Can we not forget that? All right. So if you're cautious right now and we're only 230 points from an all-time high, if you're we're 4.7% away from setting a new all-time record, what would it take to pull you from caution to full-on optimism, Victoria? Honestly, I'd love to see a pullback before I get full on optimistic because I just don't think we we have the, the fundamentals to justify where these multiples are. A lot of this run up is less fundamental and more multiple expansion. And it's also now decoupled. If you look at how the market used to trade with the Fed balance sheet, and the 10-year Treasury yield, right? They used to be fairly correlated. Balance sheet grew, market went up. 10-year yields dropped, market went up. And now we've seen this decoupling the last month and a half where 10-year yields are right around 4% again. And we've seen the Fed run off the balance sheets and financials conditions continue to tighten. And yet the market continued to run. So I think that divergence to me is a little bit of a red flag that suddenly these signals are not marching up in tandem and you don't have the macro supports that you used to have supporting this rally. Gunjan, what are you hearing when you're doing your reporting on this. I mean, I mean, we have talked for so long about the expectations or the hopes of a soft landing. When you're looking at inflation and, and job growth and GDP and declining inflation, and, and yes, rates are high, but when you're looking at all of those factors, is this a soft landing? Contessa, Wall Street certainly thinks it's a soft landing. I think that was the biggest theme of July, helping push the S&P 500 up for fifth consecutive month, was the fact that investors were saying, look, we think that the U.S. is going to avoid that recession. Those doomsday predictions that we had at the start of the year just aren't going to pan out. And that's why you saw this rally really broaden out to the regional banks, to the energy companies, to, of course, tech stocks, which keep driving us higher What's funny is, though, I was talking to an investor earlier today, and he said one lesson for him recently has been, don't try to be a hero in this market, <laughs> because this year just has not panned out the way many Wall Street strategists, analysts, investors thought it would. And, and I'm sensing some apprehension from investors, not in terms of going into the market, but not wanting to miss out and not wanting to you know, bet against this market, which has been so much more resilient than many expected. As you know, I cover gambling as a business. And a lot of what you're describing, you might actually apply to those who enjoy going into a casino floor and, and trying to game out whether it's better to play it safe and you're just gonna put your money down on red and black, or is it better to make a roll and, and try to get some of those big profits? If you were among those who listened to a whole parade of experts that we had on CNBC saying the best place to have your money is earning 5% in, in a money market account and a CD, just park it on the side and watch the others uh, ride these choppy waves. Gunjan, is your sense and what you're hearing in your reporting that it's too late that you may have missed out on this big rally? It's interesting. I, in terms of fund flows, what we are seeing is that people are still putting money into bonds. They're still looking at those 4%, 5% yields. And it's tough to turn those down when the S&P 500 has jumped almost 20% this year. So I am hearing from advisors, investors like, yes, we are in the market, 
but we're also putting some money into safer investments. And that is a shift from 2020 2021. I think it is important to step back, though. Mm. And when you look at earnings, um, the big message, the big takeaway for me is that U.S. households balance sheets are still incredibly strong. You know, we're hearing from Visa, from Royal Caribbean. People want to get on those cruises. They want to be eating out. They're using those credit cards. And that has not changed. It will be interesting to see Starbucks, um, their earnings tomorrow to get a sense of where the consumer is at. Uh, Victoria, before we go, Apple, Amazon report this week, among many, many others. If Apple and Amazon don't deliver on lofty expectations, can this can the rally still run? It's hard. And we've seen that with with Netflix and Tesla stumbling a little bit or Microsoft. It has kind of, since it's so cap weighted, pulled down and slowed down the S&P the last couple of weeks where we've actually seen the Dow and the small caps outperform them here in July. And so, yeah, so anytime you have a cap weighted index and they're so heavily weighted and the expectations are priced to perfection, they certainly can't miss. And more so about the guidance and what does it see going forward? That's going to be huge. And Amazon, everybody's looking at AWS. Are they are they continuing to grow that? Microsoft got knocked because they're their cloud was not growing fast enough and decelerating. So Amazon is not just about the print numbers of what did you do in Q2, but what are you going to do for me going forward? And how is this AI really going to play out? And Apple has been very quiet about AI. And so it'll be interesting to see if they pivot into it. But I'm not looking forward to if they update their charging port again. I saw that come across my, my screen. And no, I already, I already have like three charging cords. I've desk. got my sermon ready one. to go. I've written it out. I'm ready to deliver, to deliver some fire and brimstone. Victoria Green, Gunjan Banerjee, thank you very much for joining me, but you have to wait a little bit later in the show till you get to the sermon. Here's what happened to your money today. To put a bow on the month of July, the Dow climbed 100 points. The S&P and the NASDAQ notched modest gains. The biggest winner of the day was Paramount Global, jumping 4.6%. Biggest loser, Dexcom, down nearly 6%. Let's take a look at futures and see how things are shaping up ahead of tomorrow morning. Well, S&P 500 looks flat at this point, but at least we're seeing green. <laughs> Come on. Dow Jones, flat. NASDAQ, flat. Not a lot there. It's kind of meh, huh? Up next, Tupperware stock on an improbable run. What is behind the latest meme stock rally? We're digging in, or is it opening up next? Plus, getting fresh numbers that show how much dough presidential candidates raise ahead of 2024. Some of the leading candidates? This might surprise you. Stay tuned. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, a new push to establish Uber, Lyft, 
DoorDash, and Instacart drivers as independent contractors in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work, a group funded by those companies, is filing a new ballot initiative that would let Massachusetts voters in 2024 decide if ride hail and delivery drivers are independent contractors. The classification, of course, determines if these workers would be granted certain labor protections and benefits. A quick programming note here. Tune into Squawk Box tomorrow morning at 7 Eastern. CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin will break down Uber's quarterly results with CEO Dara Khosrowshahi at the company's headquarters in New York. You don't want to miss that interview. And a major update in the U.S. Virgin Islands J.P. Morgan Chase lawsuit. Lawyers for the U.S. Virgin Islands told a federal judge that J.P. Morgan Chase handled more than $1 million in payments from Jeffrey Epstein to, and this is their characterization, girls or women, after the bank terminated Epstein as a client. In a new letter filed this afternoon, lawyers from the office of the U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General detailed more than 9,000 transactions paid out to Epstein-related accounts between 2005 and 2019 that were not disclosed during the court-mandated evidence exchange window. In a statement to CNBC about today's filing, J.P. Morgan said, quote, there is no proof this is accurate. Next up, meme stock mania back again. First up, Tupperware, the Florida-based container company up 170% over the last week and more than 400% in the last month. The stock is still far from all-time highs, and even with the move, the company is now worth just shy of $200 million. And then there's Yellow Corp, the trucking company that shut down today and is preparing to file for bankruptcy. That stock up almost 148%. The company has been in service for nearly 100 years and hit its biggest one-day gain since going public in 1983. Of course, with all the recent declines, we're only talking about a $100 million company. Both Tupperware and Yellow are heavily shorted stocks. 27% of Tupperware's floating shares are shorted. For Yellow, nearly 20% of the float is shorted. Joining me now is Herb Greenberg, senior editor of Empire Financial Research and a CNBC contributor. Early to the Tupperware craze, telling investors not to touch the stock with a 10-foot pole and also the author of an upcoming Substack article on the topic. You can read that on Herb on the Street. Herb, thank you for being here. I'm very glad to be here, Contessa, once again, talking about this very crazy subject. Why in the world do investors think bankruptcy means buy? Or is this really all about just shoving it to the short sellers? It is not. It is all about shoving it to the short sellers, probably. But it's also about the social media uh, sort of like meme thought. Let me tell you something. I, I go over to uh, stock twits, pull up Tupperware. First thing I see is the social media frenzy is just gearing up. And hey, guys, you idiots really want to bet against a retail uh, stock like this on a float of 37 million because the retail is in control now. That's what they think. I, this reminds me, Contessa, Contessa, when I was on Halftime Report, February 2021, at the very peak, I said to Scott Wapner, I said, Scott, this is gambling. This is speculation. It's nothing more than that. Someone will be left holding the bag. It will be musical chairs all over again. We've seen it before, because if you look at the facts, just look at the facts, you would never own a share of Tupperware. But this has nothing to do with the facts. It has to do with a great brand name, 
very good brand, a terrible business, a broken business model, a company that is so bad, its financials are such a mess mm. that it hasn't filed three quarters worth of financials. In June, it said they would be filed by mid-July. Here we are at the end of July. They now say late September. Okay, so what about Yellow? Because we got a lot of news on Yellow over the past week and then certainly today. Preparing for bankruptcy, shutting down. Why in the world would anybody in their right mind buy a share of this particular company? Great company. Great question. Let's see. Uh, Let me think. Oh, it's almost 100 years old. Big trucking company. Maybe uh, it'll be like Hertz. You know, it's Yellow. Hertz was yellow. They had yellow. They, they both had yellow, um, yellow uh, logos. No, there's no reason. In fact, if you looked at the put option, I was talking to Don Broughton today. He's um, he's a great trucking analyst, and and he said if you look at the put option, the op- just the options activity in the thing, you can see the pros aren't touching this thing because they can see what's going on. This is a company that hasn't just said it's going to file for bankruptcy. It closed up shop. It was severely troubled. It is not coming back, and you know. So one day the stock won't trade. I don't, you know, again, musical chairs. Someone will be left holding the bag, a very empty bag, I might add. Herb, thank you for joining us. Appreciate that. Appreciate your perspective. Still ahead, former Disney head honchos headed back to the House of Mouse. Do they also represent potential successors for CEO Bob Iger? Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back. Time for our last call. Watch list. First up, Caterpillar. Shares of the manufacturer closed up nearly 2% today, bringing it to an all-time closing high ahead of its earnings report tomorrow morning before the bell. And next up, maybe unrelated, crude oil. Oil prices are hitting new three-month high today, with Brent and WTI crude both hitting their highest prices since late April, all supported by signs of a further tightening global supply and increased demand. And finally, we spoke a bit about meme stocks earlier, so I have to bring up AMC here. Shares for the movie theater chain got a nice 7% boost today after the company reported its highest single-week admissions revenue ever recorded, driven, of course, by the box office phenomenon that is Barbenheimer, the two movies crushing box office records since their release two weeks ago, Warner Brothers' Barbie and Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer. Meantime, fresh rumors about Apple's upcoming iPhone are swirling. The new iPhone 15 models reportedly will be USB-C compatible in order to comply with regulations from the European Union. And the higher-end pro versions of the phone will swap out their stainless steel edges for titanium, something that has been a long-time goal for Apple, all just days ahead of the company's third-quarter earnings this Thursday. We've reached out to Apple for comment on the reports. We have not yet received a response. But we, do, we are looking for a response here for on Apple and the latest buzz by big technology founder and CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz and Deepwater Management managing partner Gene Munster. Gentlemen, good to see you. Hello, I, wa- I want to get to earnings, no doubt. But first off, 
this idea that I'm going to now upgrade my iPhone 10, which has, a, has been a standard and I've kept it and I'm waiting for this new, only to have to redo all of my chargers. You want to talk about infuriating. So infuriating that my market guest leading off last call, call tonight mentioned that instead of what her expectations are for earnings. Alex, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, unlike your guest, most people already have a USB-C charger sitting at home. They have it plugged into their Kindle or an iPad or some other tablet device, and they're just waiting to be able to use that for the iPhone as well. I know I fall into that category. I've got a 10. The second the iPhone 15 comes out, and I think a little bit too much due to this USB-C charging opportunity, I'm going to go get a 15, and I think a lot of people are going to do the same thing as well. Early adopter. Gene, what do you think about the new uh, upcoming hopes for the iPhone 15, and I guess more importantly, can this drive Apple to a super cycle? Uh, it, it doesn't need to be a super cycle for the stock to be continue to move higher here. And just to put some context around that quickly, is that there are about 1.1 billion active iPhones. So there's about 420 million of those that I estimate are more than three years old. That's when you start to get into that upgrade window. So you are uh, entering that uh, prime upgrade window. And ultimately, they are going to sell, if they sell 250 million, so far less than the, those that are three years old or older, if they sell 250 million next year, they hit the street numbers. That's for 4% growth in fiscal 24. And so we don't need a super cycle. Is this going to be a super cycle? I don't think it's going to be a super cycle. It's going to be probably the best cycle that they've had in three years because the pro versions are going to look and feel um, uh, much different than they have over the past few years. This titanium that you said is going to have a lighter feel to it. They're going to have a haptic button on it that you can program. So there's some uh, flashy new features that can make this be a strong cycle. But again, it doesn't need to be a strong cycle. All you need to do is continue to upgrade your existing base for this uh, business to steadily grow. Gene, do you think that Apple is getting enough credit for its um, its Vision Pro? Like that, that do you think investors, do you think analysts are giving enough credence to the way that that could push forward technology for Apple? Not even close. I think that uh, for most investors, it still is this afterthought relative to meta and the metaverse and what is spatial computing. And ultimately, I think if you'd pull the people who have uh, tested this, there's probably a few hundred people who have gotten a demo. I include myself in that group. I think most of those would say that this is going to be more impactful than they expected before they tried it. And so uh, that's where it really uh, starts is this concept of spatial computing is much more than gaming. And I suspect if you fast forward five years, you're going to have uh, some of these headsets are going to be priced at $1,500. And ultimately, I think you're going to get a base, a strong base of call it 10%, very similar to the watch base that use this in five years for one to three hours a day. And I think most investors just think it's an afterthought. Uh, the stock really didn't do much around uh, Vision Pro and the announcement. It's going up because expectations around the quarter. So the simple takeaway is you got to be patient when it comes to Vision Pro. But we're going to be using these not all day, but enough that we're going to be uh, shelling out another fifteen hundred bucks to Apple. Uh, uh, Alex, a lot of the analysts and, and Apple watchers have described this as a weak smartphone market. They're looking at deliveries, not just of, of Apple iPhones, but also of Android devices as well, uh, being lackluster or declining somewhat. When you look at consumer spending and, and saving and, you know, sort of more macro data that's coming in, how do you think that influences where Apple is heading? 
Well, I would say Apple is somewhat immune to whatever's happening to the rest of the market. So last quarter, for instance, you had a 15% contraction in smartphone buys. Apple still grew by 2%. Mm. It seems like no matter what's happening in the rest of the economy, Apple will grow. And I think, by the way, we're reaching a point now where there's all of a sudden some tranquility in the economy. We have inflation that seems to be getting under control. The Fed has uh, you know, signaled it's going to tail off the rate raises. And everybody's starting to feel a little bit more secure in their jobs and their spending. And when that happens, all of a sudden that $1,300 or $1,000 purchase of a smartphone becomes a little less daunting. And I think Apple, if Apple can do it in a contracting market, if the market starts to expand, the company's going to be even better positioned as we go into the 15 cycle for sure. Alex, save me a spot in line when we go to trade in our iPhone 10s together, will you? <laughs> I'll have my folding chair ready. Alex, thank you. Gene, nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, former Disney head honchos headed back to the House of Mouse. Do they also represent potential successors for CEO Bob Iger? Stay with us. Welcome back. Busy weekend at the Magic Kingdom. Disney CEO Bob Iger reportedly bringing in former executives and Candle Media heads Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs as consultants for the company. Disney, of course, is navigating choppy waters, as Bob Iger told CNBC earlier this month. The company is considering spinning off or altering its television division, including brands like ABC and ESPN. The company also seeing another weak performance at the box office. Haunted Mansion underperformed on the heels of lackluster results from other summer releases from Disney. In May, Kevin Mayer joined Last Call, and Brian asked him whether he would ever return to Disney. Look, I was at Disney for 27 years, and I have great things going on in my uh, professional life right now. Candle Media, which is a modern media company backed by Blackstone and Blackstone's limited partners, is doing really well. I feel like uh, I have a lot more to do here at Candle, and I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my professional career. Disney is a very alluring. Um, they were to, uh, you know, so I have no direct answer to that, um, actually. Hmm, I call that a sidestep. Joining me now, partner and co-founder of Lightshed Partners, Rich Greenfield. Uh, all right, so when we're looking at the answer that Mayer gave versus him going back as a consultant, I think it kind of meshes, right? He's not saying that he's heading back for full employment and he's going to take over Disney. Look, if Disney wants to spend $10 billion and buy out Kevin Mayer's candle media that you know Blackstone backed, I am absolutely sure that you know, as part of an acquisition, Kevin would love to be sort of acquired by the Walt Disney Company. But I think for right now, this is more helping and just, you know, he's got a very long relationship with Bob Iger, really throughout Bob Iger's entire career. He was the trusted lieutenant on all things M&A. So when you think about Lucasfilms, Marvel, Pixar, all of the transformative transactions for Disney, including the not so good ones like Fox, you know, Kevin Mayer was obviously integral. And so I don't think it's shocking that Iger turns to to Mayer for advice on what to do. He he clearly knows he has a problem. I mean, you know, in many ways, Disney right now feels like that Formula One race car where all four wheels are sort of coming off at the same time. They've got a lot of problems. And so I think they're looking strategically for how to fix them. You know, it's interesting talking about for instance, ESPN, and, the, and you heard Bob Iger really doubling down on the importance of sports to Disney and ESPN and saying, we're not looking to spin it off, we're looking for partners. But in my own reporting, what I've learned is that 
when they go and they talk partnership, when ESPN is in talks with partnership with, say, sports betting companies, then the uh, corporate office comes in and sort of big boots all of the discussions that were happening at the ESPN level. Now you've got two guys who were pushed out formally, coming back in ostensibly to consult and to give some ideas. How do you think that's going to affect those who are working inside Disney, inside ESPN, and inside the other companies that may feel not that beloved right now? Well, look, I think, you know, the reality is uh, this is an unprecedented period of time. I mean, NBC Universal reported last week, and its cable network division, obviously the parent company of CNBC, you know, affiliate fees, the, the fees that are paid by cable and satellite operators are declining. Um, in terms of that, you know, in terms of the, the fees paid to companies like NBC Universal, the same thing with Disney, same thing with Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount, everyone is facing a, a pretty hostile cord cutting environment where cord cutting is now happening at a faster rate than you can charge more to these companies on a per subscriber basis. And so the bedrock of this industry is in secular decline, meaning that the, the affiliate, the cable and satellite fees paid, which were the bedrock for that last 20 to 30 years yeah. of this industry are in secular decline. On top of that, Contessa, the advertising environment for linear TV is terrible and not being helped by these double Hollywood strikes. Like this is a very, very difficult period of time. That may have, and been, I don't, that may have been part of what Iger was referring to when he said about the, the writer strike and the actor strike that people had to have a sense for what the business environment, what the economic environment was. But in the meantime, what what sets Disney apart is they're investing and they don't, you know, they don't churn out content in terms of volume the way that Netflix does. And so when their projects hit the box office, it needs to be meaningful. When The Little Mermaid or Elemental or Indiana Jones or This Weekend Haunted Mansion hit the box office, when Barbie has been a stunner and when Universal's Oppenheimer, again, produced by my parent company, uh, is is doing so well that it makes Disney stand out in contrast. What needs to change? What can Iger do? What can any new slash old minds do to sort of turn this big ship around? Look, it is mind blowing that the animation king is no longer Disney. Universal owns that crown, Contessa. It's not even debatable. The Disney animation engine is clearly broken. And there's no quick fix. I mean, it takes three to four years to make an animated movie. You look at how Marvel's grown tired and Lucasfilms has grown tired. All the things that drove Disney to epic success in 2017 through 2019, they've just gone too far. They've relied on these franchises a little too much and haven't created fresh original content. Barbie, a great example of what Warner Brothers just put out in connection with Mattel. Uh, there's a real problem, but I, I want to come back. There is no quick fix. You know, back when Iger came back, when Iger was appointed CEO the first time, the quick fix was buying Pixar, then going out and buying Lucasfilms mm -hmm. and Marvel and totally transforming the company. I don't see a transformative acquisition that fixes the content problem. Sure, you can spin off ESPN or find a partner or you can try to sell ABC and the cable networks, but fixing content, which was your question, there is no way to do that quickly. It's going to take years to fix the content problem that Disney's having because you've got to slow down. You've got to reduce production. Or remember, we're in a strike right now, yeah. so nothing's even getting made. So you're talking about, my Rich. guess is 25, 26 before you can fix this. Rich, on that note, thank you for being here.
Thank you. The 2020 race is heating up, and today, midnight tonight, deadline for political action committees like PACs and super PACs to disclose financial reports covering the first half of the year. We still have a few hours to go, but so far there's been some interesting disclosures reported from some of the country's top billionaires, like uh, LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman donating $4 million to a Democratic super PAC. Major security consultant Gavin DeBecker donating $4.5 million to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Super PAC. And budget suites of America owner Robert Bigelow giving over $20 million to a Ron DeSantis Super PAC. What does that mean for the 2024 race? What will fundraising look like the second half of this year? Joining me now is uh, Teddy Schleifer of Puck News. Teddy, nice to talk to you today. What do you see as a, a trend if there, if there is one emerging from these disclosures? Sure. Well, look, there, there's kind of the haves and haves nots uh, in presidential fundraising. And we know some of the haves. We know Ron DeSantis, for all of his struggles over the last couple of months, is going to have a lot of money. If he loses this presidential race, it is not because there were not enough billionaires who loved Ron DeSantis. I think people like Mickey Haley uh, is, is a have. Uh, Tim Scott is a have. But we know there are tons of Republicans who are running for president of the United States. And I think one of the takeaways that I have from uh, my day reading these reports and talking with donors and contributors is a lot of people are in the have-nots category. I think that the Republican uh, donor base has chosen maybe three to five people who actually uh, could have the money to go the distance. And there's a lot of other people who are going to struggle to buy ads, to hire staff. Um, you know, the billionaires are, are generally consolidating around a few people. And if you're not in, in the favored group, I think it's going to be a long year. In the meantime, we know that uh, Donald Trump still continues to fundraise, even on his negative news and his legal woes. Are you seeing billionaires, by and large, backing away from the former president? I think you can look at the today's news and actually feel pretty good if you're Donald Trump. I know that's surprising. Here's why. Um, the concern from Trump world, or the worst case scenario from Trump world, would be if there was if there was intense consolidation behind Ron DeSantis. And if you saw every single contributor behind him and encouraging their friends to, you know, this is our one shot to beat Trump. We know that DeSantis is the candidate um, that Trump is most concerned about. And I think that even though I just said there was consolidation kind of broadly, um, I don't think we've seen the consolidation behind DeSantis that Trump would have been concerned about. So I think you feel pretty good if you're Trump to see someone like Vivek Ramaswamy who is self-funding his campaign with tens of millions of dollars, or Doug Burgum, the North Dakota governor and billionaire himself, who is self-funding. Um, Tim Scott has money. Nikki Haley has money. Um, I think the concern for Trump would be that all of these rich guys uh, choose DeSantis and you know, or say we're going to spend you know billions of dollars if we need to. Um, it, right now, Trump might be saying, "Hey, look, they're split themselves. That's yeah. good news for me. I can squeak through with forty percent." Teddy, do you think that the money that RFK is raising spells trouble for Joe Biden? It's definitely stronger than expected. I'll say that. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Gavin DeBecker, who people here might know as uh, Jeff Bezos's security consultant during the whole Saudi Arabia uh, uh, phone uh, scandal, the fact that Gavin DeBecker is giving $5 million to, to RFK, or Tim Mellon, who's a Republican mega donor, he himself giving $5 million to RFK. Mm. RFK is going to have money, too. It's going to be it's going to be trouble for Biden, not necessarily electorally. But this has gone from like a pest to 
maybe not a threat, but something in between a pest and a threat. You can you can choose your uh, choose your metaphor here. Um, RFK is going to be a nag. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for bringing us the late breaking news. Coming up, you say you want to be the boss, but you better be careful what you wish for. A couple of them might just be facing the worst jobs in the world, at least when it comes to CEOs. Let's rank them next. Welcome back. Busy weekend at the Magic Kingdom. Disney CEO Bob Iger reportedly bringing in former executives and Candle Media heads Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs as consultants for the company. Disney, of course, is navigating choppy waters, as Bob Iger told CNBC earlier this month. The company is considering spinning off or altering its television division, including brands like ABC and ESPN. The company also seeing another weak performance at the box office. Haunted Mansion underperformed on the heels of lackluster results from other summer releases from Disney. In May, Kevin Mayer joined Last Call, and Brian asked him whether he would ever return to Disney. Look, I was at Disney for 27 years, and I have great things going on in my uh, professional life right now. Candle Media, which is a modern media company backed by Blackstone and Blackstone's limited partners, is doing really well. I feel like uh, I have a lot more to do here at Candle, and I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my professional career. Disney is a very alluring. Um, they were to, uh, you know, so I have no direct answer to that, um, actually. Hmm, I call that a sidestep. Joining me now, partner and co-founder of Lightshed Partners, Rich Greenfield. Uh, all right. So when we're looking at the answer that Mayer gave versus him going back as a consultant, I think it kind of meshes, right? He's not saying that he's heading back for full employment and he's going to take over Disney. Look, if Disney wants to spend $10 billion and buy out Kevin Mayer's Candle Media that, you know, Blackstone back, I am absolutely sure that you know, as part of an acquisition, Kevin would love to be sort of acquired by the Walt Disney Company. But I think for right now, this is more helping and just, you know, he's got a very long relationship with Bob Iger, really throughout Bob Iger's entire career. He was the trusted lieutenant on all things M&A. So when you think about Lucasfilms, Marvel, Pixar, all of the transformative transactions for Disney, including the not so good ones like Fox, you know, Kevin Mayer was obviously integral. And so I don't think it's shocking that Iger turns to to Mayer for advice on what to do. He he clearly knows he has a problem. I mean, you know, in many ways, Disney right now feels like that Formula One race car where all four wheels are sort of coming off at the same time. They've got a lot of problems. And so I think they're looking strategically for how to fix them. You know, it's interesting talking about for instance, ESPN, and, the, and you heard Bob Iger really doubling down on the importance of sports to Disney and ESPN and saying, we're not looking to spin it off, we're looking for partners. But in my own reporting, what I've learned is that when they go and they talk partnership, when ESPN is in talks with partnership with, say, sports betting companies, then the uh, corporate office comes in and sort of big boots all of the discussions that were happening at the ESPN level. Now you've got two guys who were pushed out formally, coming back in ostensibly to consult and to give some ideas. How do you think that's gonna affect those who are working inside Disney, inside ESPN and inside the other companies that may feel not that beloved right now? Well, look, I think you know the reality is uh, this is an unprecedented period of time. I mean, 
NBC Universal reported last week and its cable network division, obviously the parent company of CNBC, you know, affiliate fees, the, the fees that are paid by cable and satellite operators are declining. Um, in terms of that, you know, in terms of the, the fees paid to companies like NBC Universal, the same thing with Disney, same thing with Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount, everyone is facing a, a pretty hostile cord cutting environment where cord cutting is now happening at a faster rate than you can charge more to these companies on a per subscriber basis. And so the bedrock of this industry is in secular decline, meaning that the, the affiliate, the cable and satellite fees paid, which were the bedrock for that last 20 to 30 years yeah. of this industry are in secular decline. On top of that, Contessa, the advertising environment for linear TV is terrible and not being helped by these double Hollywood strikes. Like this is a very, very difficult period of time. That may have, and been, I don't, that may have been part of what Iger was referring to when he said about the, the writer strike and the actor strike that people had to have a sense for what the business environment, what the economic environment was. But in the meantime, what what sets Disney apart is they're investing and they don't, you know, they don't churn out content in terms of volume the way that Netflix does. And so when their projects hit the box office, it needs to be meaningful. When The Little Mermaid or Elemental or Indiana Jones or This Weekend Haunted Mansion hit the box office, when Barbie has been a stunner and when Universal's Oppenheimer, again, produced by my parent company, uh, is is doing so well that it makes Disney stand out in contrast. What needs to change? What can Iger do? What can any new slash old minds do to sort of turn this big ship around? Look, it is mind blowing that the animation king is no longer Disney. Universal owns that crown, Contessa. It's not even debatable. The Disney animation engine is clearly broken. And there's no quick fix. I mean, it takes three to four years to make an animated movie. You look at how Marvel's grown tired and Lucasfilms has grown tired. All the things that drove Disney to epic success in 2017 through 2019, they've just gone too far. They've relied on these franchises a little too much and haven't created fresh original content. Barbie, a great example of what Warner Brothers just put out in connection with Mattel. Uh, there's a real problem, but I, I want to come back. There is no quick fix. You know, back when Iger came back, when Iger was appointed CEO the first time, the quick fix was buying Pixar, then going out and buying Lucasfilms mm. and Marvel and totally transforming the company. I don't see a transformative acquisition that fixes the content problem. Sure, you can spin off ESPN or find a partner or you can try to sell ABC and the cable networks, but fixing content, which was your question, there is no way to do that quickly. It's going to take years to fix the content problem that Disney's having because you've got to slow down. You've got to reduce production. Or remember, we're in a strike right now, yeah. so nothing's even getting made. So you're talking about, my Rich. guess is 25, 26 before you can fix this. Rich, on that note, thank you for being here. Thank you. The 2020 race is heating up, and today, midnight tonight, deadline for political action committees like PACs and super PACs to disclose financial reports covering the first half of the year. We still have a few hours to go, but so far there's been some interesting disclosures reported from some of the country's top billionaires, like uh, LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman donating $4 million to a Democratic super PAC, major security consultant Gavin DeBecker donating $4.5 million to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. super PAC, 
and budget suites of America owner Robert Bigelow giving over $20 million to a Ron DeSantis super PAC. What does that mean for the 2024 race? What will fundraising look like the second half of this year? Joining me now is uh, Teddy Schleifer of Puck News. Teddy, nice to talk to you today. What do you see as a, a trend if there, if there is one emerging from these disclosures? Sure. Well, look, there, there's kind of the haves and haves-nots uh, in presidential fundraising. And we know some of the haves. We know Ron DeSantis, for all of his struggles over the last couple of months, is going to have a lot of money. If he loses this presidential race, it is not because there were not enough billionaires who loved Ron DeSantis. I think people like Mickey Haley uh, is, is a have. Uh, Tim Scott is a have. But we know there are tons of Republicans who are running for president of the United States. And I think one of the takeaways that I have from uh, my day reading these reports and talking with donors and contributors is a lot of people are in the have-nots category. I think that the Republican uh, donor base has chosen maybe three to five people who actually uh, could have the money to go the distance. And there's a lot of other people who are going to struggle to buy ads, to hire staff. Um, you know, the billionaires are, are generally consolidating around a few people. And if you're not in, in the favored group, I think it's going to be a long year. In the meantime, we know that uh, Donald Trump still continues to fundraise, even on his negative news and his legal woes. Are you seeing billionaires, by and large, backing away from the former president? I think you can look at the today's news and actually feel pretty good if you're Donald Trump. I know that's surprising. Here's why. Um, the concern from Trump world, or the worst case scenario from Trump world, would be if there was if there was intense consolidation behind Ron DeSantis. And if you saw every single contributor behind him and encouraging their friends to, you know, this is our one shot to beat Trump. We know that DeSantis is the candidate um, that Trump is most concerned about. And I think that even though I just said there was consolidation kind of broadly, um, I don't think we've seen the consolidation behind DeSantis that Trump would have been concerned about. So I think you feel pretty good if you're Trump to see someone like Vivek Ramaswamy who is self-funding his campaign with tens of millions of dollars, or Doug Burgum, the North Dakota governor and billionaire himself, who is self-funding. Um, Tim Scott has money. Nikki Haley has money. Um, I think the concern for Trump would be that all of these rich guys uh, choose DeSantis and you know, or say we're going to spend you know billions of dollars if we need to. Um, right now, Trump might be saying, "Hey, look, they're split themselves. That's good yeah. news for me. I can squeak through with forty percent." Teddy, do you think that the money that RFK is raising spells trouble for Joe Biden? It's definitely stronger than expected. I'll say that. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Gavin DeBecker, who people here might know as uh, Jeff Bezos's security consultant during the whole Saudi Arabia uh, uh, phone uh, scandal, the fact that Gavin DeBecker is giving $5 million to, to RFK or Tim Mellon, who's a Republican mega donor, he himself giving $5 million to RFK. Mm. RFK is going to have money, too. It's going to be it's going to be trouble for Biden, not necessarily electorally, but this has gone from like a pest to uh, maybe not a threat, but something in between a pest and a threat. You can you can choose your uh, choose your metaphor here. Um, RFK is going to be a nag. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for bringing us the late breaking news coming up. You say you want to be the boss, but you better be careful what you wish for. A couple of them might just be facing the worst jobs in the world at least when it comes to CEOs. Let's rank them next. Perks, power, influence, 
And how about that pay? Median salary for a U.S. CEO rose to $22.3 million a year, according to Equilar. Pretty posh position if you can get it. And a lot of people are eyeballing that corner office and angling to take the boss's seat. But in exchange for all of that, CEOs face the Herculean task of innovating for long-term growth of their businesses, all while hitting short-term numbers every quarter, responsible for creating a positive and inclusive corporate culture amid macro pressures that are often well beyond their control. And which CEO has the most difficult job in corporate America? Jeff Sonnenfeld has thoughts about that. He's the Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at Yale School of Management. Jeff, you ranked the top three CEOs with the toughest jobs. Number three, you said, was Disney CEO Bob Iger. Why? Well, you know, great question. A lot of times, Contessa, we talk about the competence and the character uh, or the charisma of these leaders. And all three of these people are fantastic on that front. They're well-prepared. But unlike our friend Jack Welch, he was my friend, you can't think about these people's interchangeable parts. They have industry expertise. And Bob uh, Bob Iger's expertise is really showing through right now how valuable it is. But it's a tough job. He's got to, you know, undeserved attack from the left and the right. Temper tantrums of grandiose politicians on the on the right and the, the frustrated actors and writers using him wrongly as a symbol. And he's had some some theatrical setbacks of some projects that he inherited from his predecessor, Bob Chapek, his predecessor. And, and of course, some of the issues you've already talked about, you know, in the show is how does he reposition it? I think he's got a fantastic plan. He's got he's, he's going for quality over quantity. He's got uh, Rich Greenfield was just on with you. And I happily the market. It was not as, uh, as I, I think, uh, cautious as Rich is, as the market popped on Disney today, because he's got the absolute dream team now with Tom Staggs, his old CFO, coming in as an advisor, the guy who ran parks for yeah. him and did extremely good. And, 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 and Kevin Mayer, an old student of mine, who, who brought them in the direct to, to a consumer. They, they, and Alan Bergman already there. And, of course, uh, uh, Dana Waldron. What? He's got an incredible team. OK, so number two, you said toughest job, Ford CEO Jim Farley. Explain. You know, the auto industry for quite some time has been very difficult. I am a, a huge fan of Mary Barra uh, and GM. She's done a lot of things right. Uh, what worries me about Jim Farley, he's been, he gets credit for being uh, quite uh, transparent. He's broken out his product lines between commercial, between the regular uh, in, industrial, you know, in, internal carbon, uh, industrial com combustion engine cars and, and broken out the EVs. So people can see very well. He also has had some high standards and his product quality, well, at least the product styling has been great, but he's had problems on quality, more recalls mm. than, than anybody else. And the UAW is hot on his trail. We have a new UAW chief that wants so to uh, so a strike, prove himself. Strike for Iger, strike for Farley. But you say the CEO with the toughest job, and this might be a no-brainer, Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of X, Twitter, I don't know. Why? Or, how, like, of course, explain why you think she's got the toughest job. Well, I know she was part of the Comcast family. She's a great alum, and people, everybody in the industry thinks very highly of her. I crossed paths with her back in her Turner days. She's superb. She's not run a total enterprise before, but of course, she was a, a superstar in the world of advertising uh, in this in this space. But she's got the toughest boss in the world to work for. The volatility of a creative genius, and I admit he's a genius, but he gets a lot of things wrong and a lot of things right. Working for Musk is impossible. Like, where's mm. this X come from? X on any system means exit. That's <laughs> at the top of everybody's screen. It doesn't mean expand into WeChat, which is what he wants to do. And who's going to trust their data to Elon Musk? 
Plus, we see advertising has plummeted in half since Musk has taken over. Uh, we've seen uh, that the viewership is, is, is down quite a bit. And we've seen the hate speech is soaring, every category of hate speech. And what, are, what do they do? And while Linda's there to try to run, to stabilize the ship, she hasn't stopped him from doing this. He goes after to sue the, the British nonprofit that charts the hate speech issues. Talk about cancel culture. You know, there's a, a lot of problems here. Uh, and, and I guess his only good news is his competitors aren't doing very much better when you take a look yeah. at Truth Social or Mastodon or, of course, Unraveling of Threads. Next up, we'll see if uh, you have three best CEO jobs. Again, number one, look at Linda Yaccarino. Number two is uh, Farley and three, Iger. Time now for our, thank you, Jeff. Nice to see you. Time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that mattered in the world of business and, oh, one chill black bear. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Birkenstock's owner could launch an IPO as soon as September, according to a new report. The listing could value the German sandal maker at more than 8 billion bucks. American passport holders will soon need a visa to travel to 30 European countries, including France, Germany, Greece, Italy, and many others. So plan ahead for your next European vacation. The English Premier League soccer team, Manchester United, agreed to a 10-year extension of its apparel partnership with Adidas. That sponsorship contract is worth $1.2 billion. Cardi B is throwing down, literally. The rapper chucked her microphone at a concert goer who threw a drink at her during a performance in Las Vegas. According to TMZ, Cardi B was accused of battery in a police report. Splish, splash, this bear's taking a bath, but picked a hot tub for a cool down. A few hours later, it wandered off. The Mega Millions jackpot now more than a billion bucks on the heels of that billion dollar plus Powerball jackpot less than two weeks ago. I feel lucky when I hit the one minute mark. Sometimes it doesn't take much. Coming up, it's Make It Mondays. We're talking to an entrepreneur pulling in six figures every month, working just five hours a week. More on his story and the advice he has for other aspiring entrepreneurs. Next. Welcome back. It's time for our Make It Monday series where we spotlight entrepreneurs across America. Tonight, meet Graham Cochran. He's a YouTuber who turned his side hustle into a seven-figure salary and now works just five hours a week. Yeah, I never thought I would make much money. I never wanted to have a job I hated. My name is Graham Cochran. I'm 39 years old. I make about $1.6 million a year. I work about five hours a week, and I live in Tampa, Florida. I'm a business coach. I run an online business where I teach people how to make money off of their passions. Welcome to episode 167 of The Graham Cochran Show. I actually lost a job in 2009, I had like an emergency fund that we lived off for a while, but eventually we burned through that. We applied for food stamps. It was a very humbling experience. So I started a blog. I thought it wouldn't amount to much, but that little decision ended up changing my entire career as I started a little blog and eventually a YouTube channel. Hey everybody, it's Graham over GrahamCochran.com. I'm teaching people how to take what they're good at, what they know, and turn it into online content and then eventually sell their knowledge in online courses and memberships. So that's what I spend all my time doing right now is helping people transition out of a nine to five job that they hate. Most of what allows me to work so few hours is a combination of systems and then eliminating a lot of stuff that just 
isn't really necessary. And then automating as much as I can. There's a lot of online tools I use to automate my sales process. And then whatever I can eliminate or automate, I try to delegate. And I have a couple of contractors that do those few things for me. In business, in general, I would say money is a great servant, but a horrible master. It's not worth being scared of or living your life as if you're controlled by what money you have or don't have. Graham Cochran joins me now. Graham, I'm curious, does most of your salary, most of your pay come from how many viewers you have on your videos or does it come from sponsors? Oh, a great question. It comes from neither. So I, I love this debate. There's this debate in the world of YouTube, which is it's all about get as many viewers as possible and you can make more money either from the ad revenue or sponsored content. And what I do is use YouTube totally differently. I use it as a lead generation tool to get people to find out about me because YouTube is a giant search engine. That's all it really is at the end of the day. Alphabet owns Google and YouTube. So it's a search engine where people are looking up how to record guitar or my vocals or whatever it is, and they find my content. And then from there, I'm letting them into my ecosystem and selling them digital video courses, trainings, paid communities, things like that to go deeper. So that's where most of that money is made is actually in selling my own products. There's so much content out there. Are there still opportunities for new entrepreneurs to go in and do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And my, I'm pretty bullish on this. I think we're at the beginning of a 30 to 40 year wave. Uh, obviously, there's more people coming in, but this is the future of education is people going online, Googling something, YouTubing it, um, not looking through a traditional class or university for things that might be a hobby. That's how I got started selling to hobbyists, selling to musicians. Um, there's, there's not that many resources to learn how to do a certain hobby, mm -hmm. or if you would just want to learn how to lose weight. So people are looking for their own individual teacher. They, they don't want to learn it from everybody. There's a lot of people that don't like learning from me. They don't jive with my personality, but there's a lot of people that do. And so I think that's the beauty of it is there's plenty of room for your unique voice and your unique spin on things. Graham, thank you. Nice to see you. Congratulations. If you'd like Thanks, to learn Contessa. more about CNBC Make It, visit cnbcmakeit.com and you can subscribe to the newsletter with the QR code on your screen. And that, my friends, is your last call for tonight. We'll be back here tomorrow. See you then. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.